folks. Welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. This week, I talk about the need for more history as people study theology, how Puerto Rican protesters ousted their governor, the president's insults of Elijah Cummings in Baltimore, the pattern of hate toward black women, and racism among a group of students at the University of Mississippi. But up first, let's talk about some announcements. Number one, just want to give you a heads up. If you notice any difference in the audio, I'm actually on the road. I'm not at my typical home studio. So uh, doing my best, you, you, you don't even want to hear where I'm recording this from. But it's, it's a soundproof area in a house. And that's all I'll say about that. But uh, hopefully we don't lose too much on the audio quality, but that's just a heads up. As for reviews, we're up to 165 reviews. That's from 147 a couple weeks ago. You all continue to blow me away with your support and your comments. This week I'm going to read one. It's called Keep Watering by Aiken Walker. He says, being a black male Christian, I never thought that it would become so urgent to learn about the history and depths of systemic oppression in our society. A few years ago, I faced significant disillusionment with the white evangelical church as a result of its overwhelming support for Donald Trump, and the witness became my refuge to process my place and faith. Footnotes is a refreshing complement to other podcasts produced by The Witness, Listening to Jamar feels like I'm getting schooled by an older brother who's been seasoned in the struggle to bring awareness to the importance of acknowledging the Imago Dei as he brings necessary context to major news stories. Thank you, Jamar, for the sacrifice you have made and continue to make through this podcast to equip saints for the work of ministry. Thank you, Aiken. It really means a lot that a black brother would listen and appreciate the show. As a black man myself, I hope to pour into everyone, but especially my kinsmen according to the flesh, as the Apostle Paul would say. And you make a great point about Trump um, and really just living in the Trump era. And it speaks to the fact that I talk about the president a lot on this podcast. Number one, because I talk a lot about politics on here, but also because if you talk to many black people, we feel like we're under this cloud of oppression, that, that it's, it's always been there, but now there's a president who actively wants to bring the racist rain down on us. And we feel exhausted, like there's no safe haven from the storm, even in the church. If you feel like that, especially as a black Christian, then let me just say that first, I know how you feel, and second, you do have a haven, a refuge. Join us October 4th and 5th for the Joy and Justice Conference. Now, I know this just sounds like a plug, but I'm serious. Come to be refreshed, to be relaxed, to feel joy, even and especially as we continue to pursue justice. That's October 4th and 5th in Chicago. Go to joyandjustice.com. Do it today. Don't delay. You can register and get the best prices, and we hope to see you October 4th and 5th in Chicago. Now, on to the next segment. This is a segment that we call Tisbits. I don't know how I feel about that name, but the good part is the whole podcast was almost called Tisbits. So at least now it's just a section and a subheading within 
the greater podcast that is called Footnotes. And this is my opportunity to just bring you some of my personal thoughts and reflections and opinions on life, on things I'm experiencing or observing. This time it comes in response to a tweet that I put out. And as many of you know, I am studying for a PhD in history. And so I, I have personally been very transformed by my study of U.S. history. So I said this in a tweet. I said, a lot of Christians reading theology, but we need some more folks reading U.S. history too. To properly apply scripture, you can't just learn the historical context of the Bible. You have to know your own historical context as well. Hashtag history matters. So when I say that, I'm basically saying that history is context. When Christians read the Bible, we're concerned about context. We want to know the date the book was written, the author, the audience, the circumstances of the church and the community, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, what the original Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic meant, and all those things. Why? Because the more information about the context we have, then the more able we are to rightly divide the word of truth. And so if context is important when we interpret scripture, then context is also important when we interpret current events. History is context. It tells us the when, the what, the how of how we got to where we are today. And when it comes to theology, history helps us understand not just the way theologians read the Bible, but also how they were reading and interpreting their own circumstances. Theology has a context. And we understand this when it comes to something like the Protestant Reformation, for example. The main doctrine under consideration in the 16th century movement was salvation. And and this came in the context of the Catholic Church charging indulgences for the forgiveness of sins and a tradition that said it was faith and works, works works such as receiving the sacraments and saying penance and, and more that saved a person in this context. Martin Luther and his allies say that it is by faith through grace alone that we're saved. Works are a result of a saving faith, not the grounds for it. That was, you know, a big part of what the Protestant Reformation was about. So if we understand the context of a particular doctrine or event in history, we can actually better understand the theology that arose within that context and the stakes of it. Now, when I was in seminary, we did. We took courses on historical theology. We studied theology in the historical context in which those theologies came about. That's good. But here's where I make the argument that Christians in America need more U.S. history in particular. If you're like me, then you need to refresh your knowledge, or perhaps you never even really knew the history of colonialism in America and the theft of Native American land, as well as the decimation of the Native American people themselves and significant events like the so-called King Philip's War. Maybe you need to remind yourself of the precise causes of the Civil War and read the Mississippi Articles of Secession or Alexander Stevens' famous cornerstone speech. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. It'll raise your eyebrows for sure. Maybe you need to go back and read King's letter from a Birmingham jail or read Rhonda Williams' book, Concrete Demands, about the Black Power Movement in the 20th century, or maybe you need to start close to home and study your own city, your own community, and even your own congregation's history. Now, listen, when I say study U.S. history, this is not to say that global historical studies aren't important. Although I focus on the U.S., my historical studies have led me to learn more about Latin America, the Atlantic world, the Middle East, 
So any comprehensive study of U.S. history is going to take you far outside this nation's border. I'm just saying that we fight and argue more about the basic facts of our own U.S. history than that of other regions in the world. But regardless of where you focus, study history. History is context, and knowing your context will only help you be a better exegete of both scripture and the world around you. Puerto Rican activists oust their governor. On August 2nd, the governor of Puerto Rico, Ricardo A. Rosolo, is set to resign his office a year and a half early. His action comes as a result of two weeks of mass protests on the island, the indictment of several top officials in his government, and most explosively, the release of hundreds of text messages from a group chat that show him insulting political opponents using coarse language and otherwise not being an upstanding political official. Now, many citizens of Puerto Rico had long been dissatisfied with Rosalo's leadership. They were upset about the corruption, the faltering economy, and a stumbling response to Hurricane Katrina. But that frustration erupted over the course of about 15 days in mid-July. So about that time, these text messages, the first of these text messages, were released. Uh, uh, about a week later, hundreds of thousands of protesters shut down a major highway in Puerto Rico and they launched an island-wide work strike to demand the governor's resignation. And you just have to see these pictures of, of crowds and crowds of people flooding the streets. But in announcing his depart departure, Rosalo said in a Facebook Live video, a huge portion of the population is unhappy and I recognize it. I've heard you. I love the island and people. Today, I have the responsibility to direct my strengths to find alternatives so that with God, we may be able to move forward. This is the culmination. This resignation is the culmination of years of grassroots work community work, and social, political organizations. That's the comment from one organizer, Sheriana Ferrer, and I thought it was important to say that because oftentimes we see sort of the fruits of the struggle, but not the roots, and the roots are the grassroots with the common everyday people who are most adversely affected by an ineffective or corrupt government. And so these text messages, y'all, 889 pages of texts were released, and what they found was shocking. Members of Rosalo's inner circle boasted about unleashing trolls against their critics on social media. This is according to one news report that I'll link to. They exchanged one meme after another mimicking President Trump, who is a colossally divisive figure in Puerto Rico. The governor mocked a poverty-stricken woman who had torn down a photograph of him in a government office after being denied food stamps. And there were texts about using the government's advertising budget to assert control over newspapers. So this is some of the stuff that came out in those text messages. Now, there's controversy over naming the governor's successor because the next person in line had already resigned. And the next person up is the Secretary of Justice, Wanda Vasquez Garced. She's not popular. So it's an ongoing deal. But so what do we make of all this? Well, I'll give you my take. I'm in awe of the Puerto Rican people. 
They saw a huge problem with the highest elected official in the country, and they lodged swift and effective protests to get him to step down. This was the work of community organizers doing the work every day. It was stay-at-home parents, college and high school students, teachers, psychologists, custodians, lawyers, people from all walks of life. Now, some people may think the actions of the protesters in Puerto Rico were too extreme, that the governor hadn't been convicted of a crime, or that just because you don't like someone's policies, that doesn't mean that you should force them out of office. I see it differently. The protesters in Puerto Rico didn't want much. What they wanted was perfectly reasonable. They demanded decency and competence from their governor. And I think we in the United States have a lot to learn from these protesters. In many ways, our own highest elected official, the president, has done much more questionable things than the Puerto Rican president, which is not to excuse what he did. Rosalo had his tawdry text messages released to the public, but the POTUS self-publicizes his insults on Twitter. We'll talk more about that later, but he has repeatedly denigrated other elected officials and whole groups of people. He's increased the national debt by trillions, and it's only climbing. He has demolished the standing of the U.S. among other countries, even among our longtime allies. And if not for a Justice Department tradition of not indicting sitting presidents, he would likely be on trial for obstruction of justice and other high crimes and misdemeanors. So, where are our protests? Why aren't we filling the streets and shutting down highways? Now, to be clear, some are, and and protests have happened. Some people are traveling to the border, they're protesting there. Some are organizing on a daily basis to register voters, to get other people into elected office. But at this point, have we become numb to the behavior from the White House that once would have been unconscionable? Have we succumbed to a feeling of helplessness? What can we ordinary citizens possibly do against the president, right? But what I really worry about is that the reason we don't see mass protests like we did in Puerto Rico is because too many people in the U.S. agree with the president's policies and rhetoric. I think many of us, at least myself, we don't protest like this partly because we don't think it'll work. That that wouldn't prevent me from getting out in the streets. But the president remains unassailably popular with too many people for protests to force him out of office. At least it seems like it. Maybe that's the case, maybe not. But I do know that disapproval of the president is far from universal, even among Christians. In the meantime, we wait to see if Democrats in the House of uh, Representatives will impeach, or whether the president will lose in the upcoming election, or if someone or some scandal will finally prove to be the last straw. In any case, best wishes to the people of Puerto Rico and their next leader as they move forward. More on the president of the United States. He insults a congressman and his entire community. By now, you've probably heard that the president released yet another despicable series of tweets insulting, this time, Congressman Elijah Cummings, as well as the district he represents, which includes parts of Baltimore. Cummings is black, he is a Democrat, and he is also the chair of the Committee on Oversight and Reform, which is charged with investigating the president. 
So I can't summarize or paraphrase what the president said. I just have to read you the words. He wrote them, Twitter, of course, and this is what the president of the United States had to say about a duly elected legislator. Representative Elijah Cummings has been a brutal bully, shouting and screaming at the great men and women of Border Patrol about conditions at the southern border when actually his Baltimore district is far worse and more dangerous. His district is considered the worst in the USA. He goes on to say, Cummings District is a disgusting, rat, and rodent-infested mess. If he spent more time in Baltimore, maybe he could help clean up this very dangerous and filthy place. I hated reading that. Reading that out loud even makes it worse. So less than a day later, Trump goes on and he doubled down on his racist rhetoric. He wrote again on Twitter, Someone please explain to Nancy Pelosi who was recently called racist by those in her own party, that there is nothing wrong with bringing out the very obvious fact that Congressman Elijah Cummings has done a very poor job for his district and the city of Baltimore. He went on to write, The Democrats always play the race card, when in fact they have done so little for our nation's great African-American people. Elijah Cummings has failed badly. These attacks echo other attacks that Trump has launched against other lawmakers of color. Not long ago, he insulted a group of four freshman congresswomen of color known as the Squad. And the punchline was that they all, who are legal citizens, lawfully elected officials, that they should go back to where they came from. Back in January of 2017, Trump pumped out a similarly vile set of tweets, this time aimed at veteran civil rights activist and U.S. representative from Georgia, Congressman John Lewis. Basically told Lewis to clean up his district, and he's attacked other black lawmakers such as Maxine Waters and so many others. Now, it's appalling that we've come to expect such words and ad hominem attacks from the president and not in a briefing or a memo or a leaked set of text messages that that he wanted to keep secret. But this is on Twitter, on social media, for the whole world to see. Now, as far as further analysis, I think some of the best responses really speak for themselves. I don't think the president has any concept of how proud people are of their communities, flaws and awe. So here's what Elijah Cummings himself had to say on Twitter. Mr. President, I go home to my district daily. Each morning I wake up and I go and fight for my neighbors. It is my constitutional duty to conduct oversight of the executive branch, but it is my moral duty to fight for my constituents. Then Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, who's actually originally from Baltimore, she tweeted, she tweeted, we all reject racist attacks against Cummings and support his steadfast leadership. And then the Baltimore Sun had an incredible editorial. It was more like a clapback. And they said this. I'll read you two parts. The first part says this. It's not hard to see what's going on here. The congressman has been a thorn in the president's side, and Mr. Trump sees attacking African-American members of Congress as good politics, as it both warms the cockles of the white supremacists who love him and causes so many of the thoughtful people who don't to scream. President Trump badmouthed Baltimore in order to make a point that the border camps are, quote, clean, efficient, and well-run, which, of course, they are not. 
unless you're fine with all the overcrowding, squalor, cages, and deprivation to be found in what the Department of Homeland Security's own Inspector General recently called, quote, a ticking time bomb. Then, here's the real ether part of the editorial. They say, we would tell the most dishonest man to ever occupy the Oval Office, the mocker of war heroes, the gleeful grabber of women's private parts, the serial bankruptor of businesses, the useful idiot of Vladimir Putin, and the guy who insisted there are good people among murderous neo-Nazis that he's still not fooling most Americans into believing he's even slightly competent in his current post, or that he possesses a scintilla of integrity. Better to have some vermin living in your neighborhood than to be one. Whoo! Uh, wow. So, tell us how you really feel, Baltimore Sun. No, I just, you know, look, those are strong words, but they're in response to strong and insulting words. And these are people defending their community. Imagine if somebody talked about your town the way the president talked about uh, Cummings District in the city of Baltimore. But what is perhaps most galling about this whole thing is the fact that so many people still refuse to call this man's words and actions racist. His chief of staff, Ms. Mick Mulvaney, he went on Fox News and he had the audacity to say that the president's word, words had, quote, absolutely zero to do with race. You have other Republicans such as Rick Scott defending him and many, many more people in his own party who don't have the spine to call this what it is, a racist attack on a black lawmaker who is critical of Trump's words and record. Nothing to do with race indeed. Look, in a stellar segment, and a poignant segment on CNN, uh, a correspondent, Victor Blackwell, who is black, he defended his hometown of Baltimore and gave example after example of times when the president used the word infested to insult a person or a community, and there was a pattern. Can you guess that pattern? Trump uses the word infested quite liberally when it comes to people and communities of color. Here's what Blackwell said. Donald Trump has tweeted more than 43,000 times. He's insulted thousands of people many different types of people, but when he tweets about infestation, it's about black and brown people, Blackwell said. Then Blackwell went on, and understandably, he gets emotional about his hometown. And listening to this man choke up, defending his community from attacks by the president, it gets me. And, and you just have to hear it. Here's Victor Blackwell. Infested, he says. The president says about Congressman Cummings district that no human would want to live there. You know who did, Mr. President? I did. From the day I was brought home from the hospital to the day I left for college. And a lot of people I care about still do. There are challenges, no doubt. But people are proud of their community. I don't want to sound self-righteous, but people get up and go to work there. They care for their families there. They love their children who pledge allegiance to the flag, just like people who live in districts of congressmen who support you, sir. They are Americans, too. When the president denigrates a black lawmaker, 
and an entire community and brings a person from that community to tears on national television, opposing him is not a matter of partisanship or political policy. It's a matter of humanity and whether we see the dignity in all people. Now, there's so much more we could say about this, but let me just make this one point. When you call a community rat and rodent infested, you call it a filthy place, there's no legitimate critique that's happening there. You're not trying to really make a point. Those comments, when they're said about black people and black communities, those are racist. They harken back to the days when it was common in the culture and in public to dehumanize black people and to compare them to animals. These comments are indefensible from anyone, let alone the President of the United States. So if you're a conservative, fine. If you're a Republican, fine. But you should be outraged too, perhaps even more so because this man is spewing his racism while representing your party. I hope the President gets primaried by people in his own party who want to stand up for the highest of this country's ideals and not its lowest injustices. I hope that we as a nation never become numb to the noxious air of racism, and I pray for a country to have the courage to call racism what it is when they see it or hear it, even, and perhaps especially, when it comes from their own president. The Death and Policing of Black Women Now, this next segment illustrates a massive problem in our society, and it also demonstrates why I'm grateful for our producer, Christina, who is a black woman, and the importance of that demographic fact will immediately become apparent. Now, I had noticed these stories, these three stories individually, but Christina, she was able to see a pattern. Since the last recording of Footnotes, there have been stories within the media of anti-blackness towards black women. This first story has to do with a woman named Hallie Bailey. That's Bailey, not Barry. She's a 19-year-old black woman whom some may know from the show Grown-ish, which is a spinoff of the hit comedy Black-ish. And some may also know Hallie from the singing group that she's a part of with her sister. It's called Chloe and Hallie. Uh, The two are singers. They're signed to Beyonce's label. I've got their latest album, The Kids Are All Right. Go check it out. They're amazing singers. Short time ago, it was announced that Hallie would be cast as Ariel in Disney's live-action remake. But our society still struggles with the fact that whiteness is the default, but that's changing. And so the way their their uncomfortability shows up with black people as leading characters and heroes is by projecting anti-blackness. So every time a beloved and a fictional character is recast, For the 21st century as a person of color, you hear people screaming about it online and in the media. So Freeform, the network that hosts the Grown-ish show, released a statement regarding the backlash. They said, spoiler alert, the character of Ariel is a work of fiction. If you cannot get past the idea that choosing the incredible, sensational, highly talented, gorgeous Halle Bailey is anything other than the inspired casting that it is, Because she doesn't look like the cartoon one, oh boy, do I have some news for you, about you. So that was one incident against black women. Here's another, a 75-year-old Louisiana woman named Sadie Roberts Joseph, 
who founded an African-American history museum in Baton Rouge and was a well-known community leader. She was discovered dead, murdered, in the trunk of her own car, just three miles from her home, in the trunk. Now, according to the New York Times, Chief Murphy J. Paul Jr. of the Baton Rouge Police Department said the suspect, Ron Germain Bell, who's 38, was a tenant in a residence Miss Roberts owned. They said he was behind on his rent, but it wasn't clear if that was connected to the killing. The motive is still under investigation, but they have the suspect in custody. Nicknamed Miss Sadie by those who knew her, one person described her as a tireless activist for peace. Miss Roberts Joseph was known as a dedicated leader who ran programs for young people. She staged an annual celebration for Juneteenth. I've talked about making Juneteenth a national holiday. And it's just a tragic loss for the community of Baton Rouge and for the community of public historians as well. Now, that's the second incident. Here's one more incident of anti-blackness against black women. And this is all within two weeks of each other. So Serena Williams, the champion tennis player, one of the best athletes on the planet, whenever she hits the court, there's always a conversation about her and policing her black body. And last week was no different. Recently, Billie Jean King, a legendary tennis player from a previous era, spoke out regarding Serena's career. King commented that Serena needs to focus on her last few years of tennis before she ages out instead of doing so much activism, activism and opinionating. Uh, specifically to quote King, she said, uh, she, meaning Serena, has got business, a baby. She's trying to help gender equity, particularly for women of color. She's actually on the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative. She and Venus are both advisors for it. King went on to say, but if she's happy doing it this way, it's fine. It's not about us. But that part about gender equity and trying to help women of color, that stuck out. So Serena was later asked in a press conference what she thought about the comment from Billie Jean King. And here's Serena's mic drop response. She said, the day I stop fighting for equality for people that look like you and me will be the day I will be in my grave. Hmm. Now, some claim that Billie Jean King was not saying that Serena should stop speaking out for what she believes in. But whatever King's intentions, that statement is one that comes from a position of relative privilege. And this is what is so hard for many white people to understand. If you're white, you can care about racial injustice one moment and forget about it the next. Why? Because in a society with white supremacy at its foundation, racism doesn't affect you the same way it does black people. In fact, it gives you certain advantages. And one of those advantages is that you can just turn your concern on and off. And if you turn it off, then you don't necessarily see or experience the ill effects of racism. Now, I argue that others have said you can't place a chain on someone else without clamping the other end to yourself. But you get the point. Black women such as Serena Williams, they can never just focus on their families or their careers or just living life. Everywhere they go, they're reminded that they're black and that they're women. When you combine those two traits in a racist and sexist society, black women face daunting obstacles to their flourishing. To say, in essence, shut up and dribble, or in Serena's case, shut up and volley, is to presume that black women can simply halt the daily assaults on their humanity. It's the policing of one's conscience and a criticism of the supposed inability to focus just on one's profession. But black women don't get the privilege 
focusing on a single issue or a single task. They unfairly have to excel at everything they do academically, professionally, socially, culturally, just to survive. So a word to black men. It's long past time for us to stand shoulder to shoulder and arm in arm with black women. Too often, we as black men have been sources of hurt instead of healing. No way should black women have to shoulder the burdens of running our churches, running our households, serving as the moral voice for our nation, and all the while enduring racism and sexism. And they certainly shouldn't have to do it alone. So I'm calling on black men in light of this unrelenting assault on black women in our society to demonstrate the same courage as Serena Williams and say, to paraphrase, the day I stop fighting for the equality of black women will be the day I will be in my grave. White students at the University of Mississippi pose with guns in front of a vandalized Emmett Till marker. This last one hits very, very close to home, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Uh, There's an investigative news agency called ProPublica that last week released a photo showing three white students from the University of Mississippi posing with guns in front of a bullet-riddled marker dedicated to Emmett Till. Till was the 14-year-old black boy who was lynched by white men for supposedly flirting with a white woman at a store in Mississippi. It was his murder, along with the courageous decision of his mother, maybe Till Mobley, to have an open casket funeral showing her son's mutilated face that helped spur the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. The boys, these white boys from who were students at the University of Mississippi, they positioned themselves in front of this marker. It, it was like it was like big game hunters proudly displaying their deceased prize. And in that context, it's as if Till, his memory, his murder, his legacy was all just a game to these grinning young men. The article from ProPublica stated that the young men are members of the Kappa Alpha fraternity, one which honors Confederate General Robert E. Lee as, quote, its spiritual founder. Look, we are formed in community. The people with whom we surround ourselves shape us in both positive and negative ways, especially when it comes to our beliefs about race and racism. So this fraternity, that's a community that honors a man who led a military effort to defend slavery during the Civil War. It's a fraternity, it's a fraternity that romanticizes the old slaveholding South and that glosses over the atrocities of white supremacy. And the results of a community with a culture like this are predictable. So while these young men made their own decisions, those decisions arose out of a context shaped by their community. Some of the most important racial justice work we can do is to choose our communities wisely. And in those communities, we also have to courageously confront racism wherever and whenever it occurs. But it's an error to focus solely on the people pictured. We also have to turn our attention to the people not in the photo, but are most impacted. And that is the black students. Now I'm in my fourth year as a doctoral student 
in history at the University of Mississippi. I love my department there, my professors, my advisors, they get it. But a question I often have to address is why do you go to school there? It's a legitimate question. This school, among all the colleges and universities in the country, is especially noted for its racism. Back in 1962, white mobs waged a riot on campus to protest the entrance of the first black student, a single black student named James Meredith, and two white people ended up dead that night. For most of its history, the university's marching band played that old Southern favorite Dixie at football games, while thousands of fans waved Confederate flags. And speaking of the flag, Mississippi is the only state to still have the Confederate battle flag emblem on its state flag. This flag is supposed to fly at every publicly funded university, but starting with the historically black colleges, they took those down and chose not to fly the state flag on campus. The University of Mississippi was the last one to do so, and that just happened a couple of years ago. Last one to take it down. So the history of racism at the university goes on and on and on. But the past year alone, the university has made headlines for bigotry. In September of 2018, a major donor of the university, Ed Meek, for whom the the journalism building on campus was named, posted a, a racist picture on Facebook. Long story short, had to take his name down from the school, made national headlines. Then in March, several players on the university's men's basketball team, took a knee during the national anthem at the beginning of the game. The move recalls Colin Kaepernick's posture of protest during the last season of his NFL career as he sought to bring attention to police brutality. Now, these young men on the basketball team, they knelt in protest of a march that was happening in support of the Confederacy in 2019. A march that started at a Confederate statue in downtown Oxford and ended at the Confederate statue at the main entrance to campus. These basketball players literally had to protest a Confederate rally on their campus in the 21st century. It's mind-blowing. So I get it, right? I, I understand why people would express confusion when a black person chooses to attend the University of Mississippi with all its public and embarrassing racism. I get it. But the the, the answer to the question why would a black student go there is, I think, pretty simple. It's we have a right to be here. At the most basic level, the University of Mississippi is a publicly funded state university. The tax dollars of black residents in the state support it just as those from white residents. And that means that any eligible student, black students too, have as much right to be there as any white student. And still on the topic of finances, the university touts itself as the flagship school in the state, the premier publicly funded university. The funding and resources of the school would certainly support that idea. Throughout its history, historically black colleges and universities have been underfunded nationally and in Mississippi. Meanwhile, the University of Mississippi, as the preferred close-to-home option for the state's elite, it's consistently grown in recent decades, and it's the state's only R1 university. That's the top research designation given to any school and which only about two and a half percent of all schools hold. So why shouldn't black students want to attend the school that has the most resources, the most funds for research, the the awards, the most doctoral degrees, and boasts state-of-the-art facilities? Why wouldn't you want to go there? 
and access to the best education possible, it's one of the driving forces of the movement for integration. Even in the historic Brown v. Board decision, many black parents were less motivated by a desire for their children to sit next to white kids than by the opportunity for their children to learn from the most experienced teachers and in the schools with the most resources. That's what drove a lot of people who wanted integration. They wanted access. And black students have a right to be at the University of Mississippi in the same way black people have a right to be in the United States. None of us has any rights over this land compared to Native Americans. We, we, we got to get that clear. But the issue is why black people who have often been here longer than white people and whose ancestors endured enslavement have their presence here questioned. That is to say, white people have no more claim on this country and perhaps even less so than the descendants of enslaved people. We have literally helped build the United States. It is the blood of our ancestors that dripped on the Delta soil and the sweat of their brows that built the White House. Black people have, the, have a claim to the United States because our presence has meant its prosperity. And in a similar way, black people have a claim on the University of Mississippi because without us, the state and the university would not be what they are. Enslaved people literally helped build the university. Their fingerprints remain embedded in the bricks they placed. The bloody battles for the civil rights movement, waged in large part by black people against their own oppression and at the risk of their livelihoods and lives, it's given us the right to a free public education at the state's most well-resourced institution. We have every right not only to go to school at the University of Mississippi, but to reshape it into a place that is welcoming and inclusive for us. No state, no city, no school escapes racism, but many people choose to ignore the racism around them. I go to school at the University of Mississippi because as painful as each racist incident can be, I belong here. And I will work to make any place I go more inclusive of people of all races and all ethnicities. That's it for this week. Remember to like my author page on Facebook so we can continue this discussion. That's facebook.com forward slash Jamar Tisby one. And I'm also on Instagram at Jamar Tisby. Same thing on Twitter at Jamar Tisby. Please give me a follow so we can keep in touch. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness podcast suite. Check out thewitnessbcc.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes. Footnotes.